0: Well, it is good to be together this morning as we continue our lengthy journey through the Gospel according to Mark, and um, we're taking a, a bit of a bigger chunk of text than normal this Sunday. We've got to pick up the pace a little bit, and um, so we're looking at Mark two twenty-three through Mark three six. Mark two twenty-three through Mark three. Six, as we look at um, last week Jesus had a uh, we saw Jesus have a controversy with the, the Pharisees conflict with the Pharisees over uh, fasting, and this week we find Jesus in conflict with the Pharisees over the issue of the Sabbath, Jesus and the Sabbath. and uh, actually, I just had you sit down, but once you turn to the passage, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. We're going to read Mark 2, 23 through Mark 3, 6. Mark two twenty-three through Mark 3, 6. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for the perfection and the clarity and the authority of your word that you have spoken, and we desperately need ears to hear and hearts to believe And so we pray for that now. Would you equip us and empower us by the presence of the Holy Spirit to respond with genuine, heartfelt trust and obedience to what you call us to in this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Last week, Amy and I watched... Uh, a new short documentary on Netflix about the, infinite, uh, the infamous, infamous uh, Malice at the Palace. Malice at the Palace. If you're not familiar with the event, um, it occurred in 2004 at an NBA basketball game between the home team, which was the Detroit Pistons, and the away team, the Indiana Pacers. And the Palace was the arena that the Detroit Pistons played in. And this occurrence has been deemed malice at the palace because it involved a a bitter brawl between the Indiana Pacers and the Detroit Pistons and their fans. And it all started when Pacers' uh, small forward, Ron Artest, shoved the Pistons' center, Ben Wallace, from behind when he went up for a layup. And Wallace then responded by, by shoving Artest in return, and then things escalated very quickly as both teams begin to engage one another in a mosh pit of yelling, shoving, and cursing. And so far, you know, nothing too out of the ordinary had happened. I mean, that's not, that doesn't happen every game, but it happens often enough that you, you kind of just take that and you go, okay, well, this, this happens from time to time. It's to be expected. But in the midst of this mosh pit, an action of a fan in the stands was something of a turning point of the whole night. A Pistons fan threw his beer at Ron Artest. That was the turning point. Mayhem ensued, which can only be described as maybe a minor riot at the palace there. Uh, Players took to the stands and got into fistfights with fans. Fans rushed the court, challenging players to fight. Most of the drinks, popcorn, nachos, whatever, and the stadium ended up being thrown on the Indiana Pacers. People threw fists and elbows and chairs in order to cause as much damage and harm as possible to their opponents. And in the wake of these of, of these events, of these happenings, there came a months-long investigation of the event that finally resulted in a few players being suspended for a total of 146 games. Fans and players were charged with felonious assault. Some fans were... Uh, banned from NBA games for the rest of their lives, the malice at the palace. Well, I really wanted to come up with a very clever name for the occurrence of our text this morning. I, I thought about wrath on the Sabbath. Didn't really have a good ring to it. I thought about um, melee on the Sabbath day, uh, demagogues at the synagogue, and, but nothing really had the, the same ring to it. It's not, not as good as malice at the palace. I don't know. But we see in our text here a similar sort of conflict and clash between Jesus and his disciples, the Pharisees. And we've been seeing what we've we've been calling these these conflict passages between Jesus and the Pharisees already, but but things escalate quite a bit in our passage this morning. Of course, you, you might think, well, this is nothing compared to what you just described of the malice at the palace. This doesn't really compare to that. There's no riots, there's no elbows, there's no chairs being thrown, there's no riot here. But take another look at the very last verse of our text. Mark 3, 6 tells us that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. Things begin to turn violent here as the the shadow of the cross rests heavily on our passage this morning. The Pharisees and the Herodians, who groups who were otherwise, you know, they go together like Republicans and Democrats, or Indiana Pacers and the Detroit Pistons. These Pharisees and the Herodians, otherwise enemies, begin conspiring behind closed doors on how to kill and get rid of Jesus in this revolution that he's begun in Israel. And the tipping point was not a shove or a beer can being thrown or anything along those lines. The tipping point in these escalating conflicts is that Jesus challenge the Pharisees' conception and construction of the Sabbath. Our text begins by giving us an account of an occasion on which one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, in in Israel, this was a perfectly permissible thing to do. If you happen to be walking through a grain field, it was perfectly permissible to simply pluck some heads of grain, rub them in your hands, to get rid of the chaff, and then pop them in your mouth and eat them. In, in fact, the Old Testament law addresses such an issue in Deuteronomy 23:25. It literally says this, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put the sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Of course, just beautiful wisdom there. Uh, regarding uh, how how to honor a person's property as it forbids God's people from, from stealing from their neighbor's crop, but it also requires generosity from the crop owner toward their hungry and needy neighbor. So there's just beautiful wisdom there, and it's permissible according to God's law. So the problem then with the Pharisees was not the activity itself, you see. The problem lies with the timing of the activity. This took place on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, of course, is the the day of rest set apart for God's people. In the Old Testament, it was on the seventh day of the week. It was this this sacred day. One rabbi called it a temple in time. It was this sacred day set aside wherein Yahweh's presence was near to his people. And so the Pharisees were, were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And now, notice they say it in such a matter-of-fact way. It's very interesting to me. They they say say that what the disciples are doing is unlawful, as if there's no question regarding whether it is or not. And yet, things are not so black and white as the Pharisees make it out to be here. Of course, it's true that if you read the Old Testament Sabbath commands in Scripture, uh, they prohibit work on the Sabbath. And yet, any discerning person can immediately recognize the complexity of how to apply such a command. You know, it, it, that starts, it begs the question in the first place, what is work? What is work in the first place? And moreover, is all work prohibited on the Sabbath? Are there, as some people have called them, works of necessity that must take place on the Sabbath? Like if you're going to eat a meal... You must prepare that meal. If you have animals, don't you need to feed your animals on the Sabbath? If a foreign army invades, is it permissible for soldiers to engage in battle on the Sabbath? These are what we might call works of necessity. And then there's also works of, of mercy that have been asked uh, whether those are permissible on the Sabbath. If your neighbor falls and breaks his leg, should you pick him up and give him medical attention? Wouldn't that be considered work? Uh, if, if a starving child wanders into your neighborhood, should you bring him into your home and prepare a meal for him? You can easily see there's some gray area here when applying this particular command. And people in Israel at this time, including the Pharisees, tried to deal with the complexity of these issues in different ways with uh, extra biblical rules, some being more strict and some being less strict. And we have some records of these additional rules and requirements and, and regulations from rabbis and texts like the Mishnah, uh, uh, from uh, just, you know, uh, first and second century uh, documents, Uh, the Mishnah gives 39 regulations for Sabbath keeping. 39 regulations for Sabbath keeping. And the Mishnah, this work of rabbinic uh, writing, prohibits uh, plowing, hunting, butchering, things you might expect, but then it also prohibits kind of crazy things like tying or loosing knots. Uh, if you sew, you're only allowed to sew one stitch. Uh, if you write, you're only allowed to write one letter. Um, so there are these, these kind of uh, uh, extra regulations from the rabbis uh, regarding the Sabbath. And, and that's not even the most strict of them. Some other documents have rules so strict that You're not allowed to carry children on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to birth animals on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to retrieve your animal on the Sabbath if they've fallen into a hole or a ditch. Uh, There are rules against um, even setting broken bones. If if your neighbor breaks his bone, you're not allowed to to set his broken bone on the Sabbath. Uh, You'll often see uh, references to a Sabbath day journey. It was forbidden by some to walk more than 800 meters on the Sabbath. One work I read this last week gave instructions for what to do if a person's home uh, was destroyed and and fell on top of them. If they were allowed, if they were alive rather, you were allowed to remove just enough rubble in order to get them out if they were still alive. But if they were dead, you were supposed to just leave them there until the next day. So they had all these extra rules regarding what constituted work on the Sabbath. And these people would do all of this in order to, to not just keep the Sabbath but to stay as far away as possible from even potentially breaking the Sabbath. They would put what they called a hedge around the law, this kind of barrier around the law and the commandments of the Old Testament, and they put them there to keep themselves and everyone else from even getting close to breaking the law. So all that to say, some circles could be debilitatingly scrupulous in seeking to apply Sabbath-keeping in Israel, and the Pharisees were one of those groups. And one of the rules that we find in some of the later rabbinic writings that, we, uh, that honestly might have come from the Pharisees is a rule forbidding plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. And so with that particular application regarding how to keep the Sabbath, the Pharisees deemed Jesus and his disciples to be doing something unlawful on the Sabbath. But then Jesus gives a very interesting rebuttal here and it's not one you would, you would expect him to give. Pick it up in verse 25. He says, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, very briefly, I need to go on a rabbit trail. There's there's a textual issue here that I would be remiss if I didn't address. If you go back to the passage that Jesus is referring to in 1 Samuel 22, you'll see that the high priest who gives David and his men the bread of the presence was not a Beathar, but a man named Ahimelech. So Ahimelech was the high priest at the time when David and his men went to the temple to, to eat, and Ahimelech was Abiathar's father, and Abiathar was the high priest after Ahimelech, his father. And so some look at this text, and they claim that either that that Jesus was mistaken here, and that Mark recorded Jesus' mistake, Or that Mark is mistaken here and that the Bible isn't inerrant. And if the Bible isn't inerrant and we can't trust it to record historical details such as this now, how can we trust the Bible to record historical details regarding Jesus' miracles or Jesus' resurrection and everything begins to fall? In fact, one of the most famous intellectual critics and challengers of Christianity claims to have lost his faith over this very issue in this particular Passage, Bar Ehrman, he's a, a biblical scholar, says he lost his faith because his college professor suggested to him when they were looking at this passage in the Bible together that the Bible had mistakes in it. And yet, there really is just a very simple explanation here. Take note that Jesus doesn't actually say that Abiathar was the high priest who gave the bread of the presence to David and his men, he just says, in the time. Of Abiathar in the era, in the age of Abiathar. And that makes sense when you consider the fact that Abiathar was a priest uh, d- during that time, and that he was also the high priest after his father, Ahimelech, and that he was even the better-known high priest of that time, of that era, of that age. It might be similar to someone uh, uh, referring to the Jeffersonian era. You know, if you hear the Jeffersonian era, you might think that's the time when Thomas Jefferson was president from uh, 1901 to 1908, or uh, no, sorry, that's not 19, 1801 to 1809. Sorry, but it obviously involves more than that. Uh, the The Jeffersonian era is considered to be from 1800 to 1815 because of the the sizable influence he had in politics and in his particular political party in that era and and the the fame of his name. And so they call that entire time the Jeffersonian era, not just when he was the president of the United States. In the same way, it wouldn't be inappropriate to call the event of, of 1 Samuel 22 as belonging to the time or the era or the age of Abiathar, because Abiathar would have been a priest during that time, and he was the better-known high priest of that era who came immediately after his father, Ahimelech. So we'll just leave that there. But then, back to the point of the passage here, what took place in that particular story referenced here? The story takes place between the time when David was anointed king of Israel and yet had not been enthroned as such, and Saul was still king. And Saul was hunting David and his, his band of men. And while David and his men were on the run, they came to the tabernacle. And the high priest Ahimelech took them in and he saw to their needs, even at great risk to himself. And apparently, he had no food to give them except for the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence was this sacred and set apart bread that was placed on the altar in the tabernacle, and later the temple, and they would place it there Sabbath after Sabbath. So they'd place it there on the Sabbath day, and then after a week, they, uh, they, after the bread had been there for, for seven days, the priests would then bake new bread and place that bread on the altar and then eat the old bread themselves. Now, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus and his disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath? And this is This is brilliant. Jesus is brilliant. This is so brilliant. There are actually two levels at which Jesus' argument here refutes the Pharisees. The first level is what we might call the the humanitarian level. Uh, and, and, And it's summed up in this proverb stated in verse 27. Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the point is very simple. While it wasn't typical or even considered lawful for David and his men to eat the bread of the presence human need in that situation trumped ceremonial regulations. And likewise, in the act of the disciples plucking grain, heads of grain on the Sabbath, human need for food and refreshment trumped not not biblical regulations, but these pharisaical regulations, whatever they might be. And remember, these these regulations, they're not even ones recorded in Scripture, but Jesus is saying, just for the sake of argument, let's say that it is, this is still lawful. Why? Because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is the humanitarian level. The Sabbath was something created by God in order to bless humanity. Humanity was not created to bless the Sabbath. The Sabbath was ordained by God to offer rest and refreshment and renewal to humanity. Humanity wasn't created to be enslaved to a particular calendar or to a particular set of rules and regulations pertaining to that calendar, and yet that's what the Pharisees were doing. It's, it's almost as if they saw the Sabbath as a little four-by-four four jail cell that they had to go into once a week, and if you put so much as your pinky toe outside of that jail cell, they would pounce on you. Jesus is saying the Sabbath wasn't created as a jail cell to, to imprison humanity. It was created as a means of relinquishing our self-exertion and as a sign of one's trusting in the salvation and providence of God. It was supposed to help man release his anxieties, not be a source of his anxieties. The second level at which this argument works is the, the Christological argu- ar- uh, level And that level is summed up in in verse 28 here when he says, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So part of what we need to understand about David being used as a particular example here is that David was seen as a sort of messianic precursor uh, that... that, the, that foreshadowed the coming of the, the Christ, the true and ultimate Messiah. He was seen as the foreshadow of the Messiah who was to come, who would usher in the kingdom of God and bring salvation to God's chosen people. David was the anointed king that led Israel into uh, her, her, you know, her golden era. It led her into a, a season of unparalleled victory and justice and religious life and vitality and all these things. And so as such, these Israelites would read about David doing such a thing, and they would, they would say, but yeah, that was, he could do, that was David. He could do that. He had the authority to do that because he was the anointed king. And now Jesus is doing this sort of classic Jewish lesser to greater argument here where he's saying that if David had the authority to eat the bread of the presence in 1 Samuel 22 then I, as the Son of Man, have authority to define and to regulate what is permissible on the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I'm the divine Messiah who actually ordained and created this Sabbath thing in the first place. And so if you think you have the right to scold me on this, think again, friend. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, how do we apply this this rather complicated Argument that seems more relevant to to first century uh, disciples of Jesus than it does us in some ways. Well, it it is incredibly relevant. One thing, maybe a very immediate application, is that we should remember, as as Danny Aiken has put it, is that the Lord's day is to be a blessing, not a burden. The Lord's day is to be a blessing, not a burden. The Sabbath is a gift for man that God ordained on the first week of creation meant to be a gift for man to enjoy and be blessed by. And in the new covenant era, we've moved from the the seventh day, Sabbath, to the first day of the week, Lord's Day, which commemorates Christ's resurrection and which reminds us that he has ushered in what we might call the eighth day, the, the day of the new creation, the new era of salvation, redemption, which the old age passes away. That's what the the Lord's day, being on the first day of the week, symbolizes to us. But even as we create, or, or commemorate rather, this day week in and week out, we should remember that it's to be a blessing and not a burden. It's to be a blessing and not a burden. It's a day we're to set aside unless providentially hindered, for the purposes of rest from our ordinary work, so that we can focus on spending time with God and spending time with his people and serving others and spending time sometimes doing nothing in particular at all. It's a day wherein we're called to set aside work to refresh our bodies with rest and refresh our souls with the presence of God. And with that, it's not a day that we're to strangle with rules and regulations by by which we judge or bind the consciences of others. Paul tells us in in Colossians 2.16, he says that we're to let no one pass judgment on us in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. We're not to let people judge us in relation to these things. And by implication, we're not to judge others in relation to these things. I think the Baptist faith and message actually sums up our duty in relation to this very well. Listen to what it says. It says, The first day of the week is the Lord's Day. It is a Christian institution for regular observance. It commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the dead and should include exercises of worship and spiritual devotion, both public and private. And then it closes the paragraph with this very wonderful sentence saying, Activities on the Lord's Day should be commensurate with the Christian's conscience under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Activities on the Lord's Day should be commensurate with the Christian's conscience under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Should we pluck heads of grain and eat them on the Lord's Day? Should we walk more than 800 meters? Should we sow? Should we garden, watch TV, ride our bikes, floss our teeth, smoke a brisket, drive cars, eat sushi, read Harry Potter? Should we journal activities on the Lord's Day? Should be commensurate with the Christian's conscience under the lordship of Jesus Christ? But then there's a a sort of wider principle here that that we could, if we want to expand this application here, when it comes to addressing issues that are not uh, clearly or directly addressed by Scripture uh, and are not, uh, you know, are more appropriate Uh, more appropriately described as matters of conscience, Paul addresses how we should kind of address and interact with others according to these things in our churches. Romans 12, or Romans rather 14, 2 through 4, Paul says this, he says, One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Of course, here Paul is addressing eating according to particular dietary laws in the Old Testament. But the principle can can be widely expanded to address any number of issues. So how should we treat one another and talk with one another when we have disagreements about uh, schooling, homeschooling, Christian private schooling, public schooling? How should we talk with one another about these things? How should we treat one another and talk with one another when we consider how we're going to vote in the upcoming Dayton mayoral election, or any election, for for that matter? How should we treat one another and talk with one another when we bring up the COVID vaccine? How should we treat one another and talk with one another about political issues like raising the minimum wage? Should Should we... have a big fight and judge each other and seek to bind one another's consciences when we talk about such things. When we have no clear biblical grounds for doing so, one way or the other, on these issues, absolutely not, absolutely not. The point, the point is not that these issues are morally relative, or that truth is morally uh, uh, is truth is relative, or, or that these things are even unimportant. That's not the point. The point is that we ought only bind one another's consciences. When something is explicitly biblical or necessarily inferred by Scripture. And other than that, who are we to judge? The servant of another. Jesus is Lord of his people and Lord of their consciences. And so we should never seek to strangle one another with any extra biblical doctrines, even if we find them to be helpful and right and appropriate ourselves. Then moving on, we see Jesus, we see Jesus not only teach that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, Fascinatingly, in, this, in the beginning of chapter 3 here, we also see him demonstrate it. Now, after this, this brief conflict and argument in Mark 2, 23 through 28, Jesus and his disciples and, and the Pharisees all go to church together. Uh, I'm sure it was, the walk there was probably so awkward, uh, but here they are. And when they arrive, there's a man in attendance who had a withered hand. And it's not clear what that means, whether he had paralysis or arthritis or something like that. But the the Pharisees kept close attention on Jesus here to see what he would do. They were just waiting to pounce on him, waiting, just waiting to see what he would do so that they could pounce on him. Which, by the way, don't be that person. Don't be the kind of person that just watches others carefully in order to to pounce on them once they step out of your man-made lines. Don't, don't, Don't be that kind of person who just lies in wait for others to mess up so that you can pounce on them like the moral police. What a dangerous place for our hearts to be as human beings. I've had people do that in, in the church over the last couple of years at times. It's very frustrating. Parents, parents, we can do this to our kids. Have you ever done this to your kids where you've just waited for them to step out of line so that you can pounce on them? There's, there's nothing less attractive. That's not attractive. It's not loving. It's not believing the best about others. It's not representing Christ well. It's, it's a mark of pharisaical self-righteousness. So that's what these Pharisees are doing here. They watch Jesus, it says, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. But of course, Jesus Jesus is not cowardly. He's courageous. He's not controlled by what these Pharisees think or want. And so he tells the man with the withered hand to come and stand among them all. And he gets up, and he comes up, and Jesus then turns to the Pharisees, and he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill Now, the first part there uh, about doing good or saving is for Jesus, right? Jesus is asking whether it's lawful for him to do the good work of healing this man, if it's the right thing to do. And, of course, Jesus is is asking to make a point. He's He's not asking because he's lacking information. He's asking to make a point. We should do good when it is within our power to do so. So the answer is fairly simple. Jesus should heal the man. But then the second part there is for the Pharisees, because in their their breathtakingly bizarre hypocrisy, they were accusing Jesus of doing evil by healing on the Sabbath, all while they follow him around trying to find a reason to kill him. And then after Jesus heals the man with a withered hand, they go work and conspire with the Herodians on the Sabbath to try to find a way to kill Jesus. So evidently, the Pharisees think it 's wrong to pluck heads of grain or heal on the Sabbath, but they 're okay with plotting to murder on the sabbath they 're religious they 're fastidious when it comes to sabbath keeping they 're zealous when it comes to keeping parts of god 's revealed law, but they are missing the entire point they 're missing the entire point see adventures and missing the forest for the trees right they 're like they 're like in this beautiful. Panorama, this beautiful forest, which just has gorgeous views and, 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 and beautiful trees and rolling hills of uh, it's just beautiful. And they're sitting in front of a tree, two inches with a magnifying glass, studying bark. They're insane. They're so breathtakingly bizarrely hypocritical. And, and there's a number of ways in which they're hypocritical and that they're missing the forest for the trees here. But the first way And this is something we have to be aware of in our own lives. Because we can do this. We can miss the forest for the trees in the same way as the Pharisees do here when they see God's law as a set of externals and formalities rather than a call to love God and love neighbor. Here they are perfectly happy to avoid walking a certain distance or plucking heads of grain while they condemn a man being healed and plan a murder. No wonder Jesus condemns the Pharisees in Matthew 23 when he says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. They, they tithe their spice rack. They get a tenth of their cumin. Out of their spice rack and they sprinkle it in the offering plate, and yet they've neglected weightier matters of the law. Jesus says, Justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says, These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind God, straining a gnat and swallowing a camel, right? Being scrupulous about externals like tithing and rabbinical sabbath regulations and lords day activities and voting practices and schooling methods while failing to love and care for your neighbor is ludicrous and it misses the entire point of the law which is to love showing us how to love god and to love our neighbors we have the law so that we might look we might know what it looks like to live a life of glorifying and worshiping god as our savior and lord and how to love and serve our neighbors as our fellow man, so we might understand what it is to live lives of justice, mercy and faithfulness, not so we have an easy set of steps toward justifying ourselves. And then second, they miss the forest for the trees. when they miss that God's law is supposed to point us to Jesus. right? They're, they're, they're again, they're with a the magnifying glass, looking at rabbinical Sabbath reg- regulations all while the Lord of the Sabbath is standing right in front of them, and they're missing it entirely. Just what Jesus tells us in in John 5, 39 and 40, he says uh, to a group of his Jewish listeners, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and yet it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's the point of the scriptures. He's their primary message. He's the one that we're meant to see in them. And this is true even of the Old Testament law, which Jesus' hearers knew well. The point of the law and the prophets was to point to Jesus, to Jesus. And this is true in a particular way with the Sabbath command in the Old Testament. Paul tells us in in Colossians 2.17, we read Colossians 2.16 earlier, but in 2.17 he says that the Sabbath command was a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. Christ is the substance of which the Sabbath is only a shadow. What does that mean? It means that while the Old Testament Sabbath commands called God's people to physical rest from their labors, they were ultimately pointing us to the spiritual rest that Christ would come to provide for his people in his saving work. And then, of course, that begs the question, then what what does it mean to have spiritual rest? How does Christ provide us with spiritual rest? And Tim Keller, he he discusses this in his book, King's Cross. He uses this illustration from uh, the movie, The Chariots of Fire, which you might be familiar with. It's a true story uh, about uh, Olympic runners, one-turned missionary, Eric Little, and the other is Harold Abrams. And they both competed in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. Eric Little, of course, was a a Christian who who actually refused to run a particular race because it took place on a Sunday, the Lord's Day. And as a result, he lost his chance to run in that race, which was a race he was favored to win the gold medal in. So the movie, at one level, is is about Little taking that day off and his convictions regarding taking that day and not racing on it. And at another level, the movie is is about the contrast between Little and Abrams. Both wanted to win the gold medal so badly. But Abrams was doing it out of this compulsive need to prove himself and to prove his worth. At one point in the movie, he says about racing, he says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. 10 seconds to make me feel like I'm worthy of acceptance of existence of love and approval which is really what we all, which is what everyone is looking for, and it's the reason that we do everything that we do is because we want that, that feeling of worth and approval and love and adoration. It, this is why the Pharisees set up all of these extra rules regarding Sabbath regulations and why they're coming up with all of these extra-biblical rules. It's why we come up with all of these extra-biblical rules that we seek to bind the consciences of others over. We want to justify our existence. We want to feel worthy of love and acceptance like Abrams. We want to continually exhaust ourselves in pursuit of approval and worth and love. But little, on the other hand had something Abrams didn't possess. Little simply sought to please God with his running because he knew that God had already accepted him and that his identity was secure, not because of his own worthiness, but because of the worthiness of Christ for him. Keller describes it well when he says this. He says, Abrams was weary even when rested, and Little was rested even when exerting himself. Why? Because there's a work underneath our work that we really need rest from. It's the work of self-justification. It's the work that often leads us to take refuge in religion. That's the kind of work we're engaged in. Even if we live every single day like it's the Sabbath, that's the kind of work we're engaged in. That's the deepest cause of our weariness and our exhaustion as human beings. That's the kind of work that we truly and ultimately need rest from. We need rest from seeking to justify ourselves and seeking to prove ourselves worthy before God in the world. And that rest can only come when we hear God say over us, I justify you. I call you my own. I forgive you. I accept you because my son was worthy on your behalf. The only way that we can hear those words spoken over us is in the cross of Jesus Christ, the shadow of which is cast heavily over our passage this morning. Because you see that the plans of these Pharisees and Herodians that we mentioned at the beginning and here in verse 6, these plans to destroy Jesus, they came to fruition. They came to fruition because they weren't just the plans of the Herodians and the Pharisees. They were God's plans, ones that the the Sabbath pointed God's people to all along. They were the very reason that Jesus came to live the life that we should have lived and to be put on that cross to experience the restlessness that our sin always leads to and to die there the death that we deserve to die, and he did that in our place. Also, that he might rise on the third day and thereby lead us into the rest of having the unearned, indestructible, irrefutable proof of God's love and acceptance and adoration. Jesus came to give us and lead us into true Sabbath rest. And so we ought to look to him, not to externals not to laws and regulations or human opinions. We have to look to Christ and be at rest in Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the coming, the living, the teaching, the suffering, the crucifixion, the dying, the burying, the resurrecting of Christ this morning. We thank you that he has entered into the eternal Sabbath rest, being seated at your right hand and has given us a sign and a foretaste of it in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit and in our life together as we look forward to the day of his return when we rest completely from our labors. We pray that even now that you would give our hearts rest in Christ, what he's done, to know that our worthiness, our acceptance, our justification, Is in him and him alone, and so we've got nothing left to prove. Help us to do that now, today, this morning, in Jesus' name.